It's one of the most iconic sounds in nature. And it comes from an animal that's intertwined with human history, Panthera leo. From as far back as the Bronze Age to the indistinguishably digital version that appears on movie screens, the lion has been a part of our consciousness through the ages. It has always been revered as one of nature's special creations, and has commanded respect, love, and fear in equal measure. But there is an ongoing and alarming truth about lions: they are fighting for survival. While pockets of populations are stable and some are even thriving, there's no denying that the number of wild lions across Africa has declined rapidly over recent decades. In this podcast, we explore the reasons why. We speak to global experts about the state of lions in South Africa and beyond, and we discuss some topics that you may find uncomfortable. There are stories of hope, though, and a surprising amount that every podcast listener can do to help with the plight of lions. This is Blind Conservation Lion Stories. My name is Spike Ballantine. My co-host is Anthony Miedera. This is the second of a two-part series of blind conservation lion stories. In our first episode, we explored some of the reasons behind the dwindling numbers of wild lions in Africa, and they included things like human-lion conflict and the trade in bushmeat and lion parts. In this episode, we get into a topic that a lot of people might be a little bit uncomfortable with. We'll also explore some of the work being done by lion conservationists to help restore lion numbers across the continent. But before we get into that, though, some good news in the world of lion conservation. While we were producing this podcast, a South African government panel agreed to adopt the recommendations of a number of scientists around captive breeding. And why this is important is because the captive breeding industry feeds a whole lot of other industries that are either directly affecting lions or exploiting lions on some level. So the one element is that the captive breeding industry was uh, and it will stop once the high level panel recommendations go into place it was feeding the lion bone trade mm. because according to ascites uh, charter in 2018 south africa was allowed to breed lions in captivity up to 800 a year mm. and a lot of those lions were bred purely for the bone trade for the skeleton and that's all it was so you can imagine that the the farmers really had no interest in keeping the animal yeah. particularly healthy or allowing us a lot of freedom or to live a, a good life because all they wanted ultimately was mature bones that they would get after a few years and then that's where it expanded i think because it wasn't protected from sarties and uh, a lot of these farms did open up yeah of course and that fed another industry which is captive lion interaction and I'll put my hand up. I am guilty of this. I have family in New Zealand. They came out. We went to a lion farm about half an hour out of Joburg. And yeah, you go into a pen and you interact with lion cubs. Now, on the face of it, it might seem like a fairly harmless practice. But we spoke to Dr. Louise Duval, who is a campaign manager for Bloodlines, an organization set up to raise awareness behind the captive lion industry that includes lion cub interaction. She explained to us the negative impact of the practice by looking at the life cycle of a captive lion. 
cubs are born and at a very young age, sometimes even a few hours or a few days after birth, they are generally taken away from their mothers and are then hand reared, uh, bottle fed, often involving paying international volunteers. This has two advantages. First of all, by taking the cubs away from the mother, the mother actually gets quicker back into her breeding cycle and that way can actually produce four to five times as many litters as she would do in the wilds. Secondly, the second advantage is that the cubs can be uh, hand-reared and therefore habituated and can that way be used in the petting industry. Obviously, their life uh, span in a petting enclosure is not very long because they grow into boisterous animals that can no longer be interacted with. Uh, safely and um, often they then go into a walking with lions type of activity or they go back to the breeder where they hold them until they mature so they can become breeding animals themselves. And it gets worse. Along with Louise Duval, Nicola Gerard is a director of Blood Lions and she explains the very real dangers for anyone who chooses to get close to a captive lion, even if it is used to humans. You know, when you just look at your domestic dog, for example, you would not feel comfortable for your young child to be playing intensely with a dog that you don't really know its history or personality. But here you've got an entire industry dedicated to letting children play with wild animals. And for some reason, we've allowed this to happen. So we've got quite scary statistics of attacks that we know of. A lot of it is hidden from the media. So we actually don't have the proper numbers there. There was an argument that captive lions, their breeding and their hunting, contribute economically via tourism. But research into the captive breeding industry proves that whatever contribution is being made isn't nearly valuable enough. Here's the China University of Technology's Dr. Kelly Monowick with some figures on the economics and the reputational damage of the captive breeding industry. So our green economy has been identified as one of the few places where our economy can really, really grow. And interestingly enough also is that our wildlife sector brings in more money to our GDP than mining does. So it's a very important sector to keep our country floating and to keep our GDP looking as good as it possibly can. Russ Harvey published a paper called Towards a Cost-Benefit Analysis of South Africa's Captive Predator Breeding Industry. And he found that the subsector generates gross revenues of approximately $180 million per year, which is 0.96% of South Africa's total tourism GDP. So you know, it's quite small in terms of what tourism brings into South Africa. He finds that alternative land use, so apart from breeding lions and cages, could create 960 ecotourism jobs which is 400 jobs more than the lion breeding industry is currently supporting in its entirety. And he also found that the reputational damage to South Africa from supporting captive breeding is quantified at $2.79 billion over the next decade. You know, for any business to be successful, it requires a social license. And we've seen so many examples where businesses have done something really stupid that's, that's, that's affected their reputation and sunk the business. And essentially, our wildlife in South Africa is a business. And things like this captive hunting is frowned upon by the international community. People see it as unethical. They see it as cruel. 
And it's getting to the point where it's starting to impact on South Africa's conservation reputation. A lot of the hunters are saying now, rather go hunt in Namibia, it's wilder than South Africa. And we need tourists to come to South Africa, be the hunting tourists or be the photographic tourists, whatever it may be. Another aspect that comes into lion conservation is one that is controversial. Just You just have to mention the word and you get opinions left, right and center, and that is hunting. Now, I'm, I'm weirdly ambivalent about hunting. I, on the one hand, I can see that it's got some benefits. On the other hand, I don't particularly agree with killing animals. But, you know, when it comes to conservation, it apparently does have a place. So when you look at it, the lifespan of a lion maybe it's 11 years in the wild, 12 years, and you see some of these great lions like the Majingilani Coalition or the Mapoho Coalition, and they get emaciated and they look terrible, their ribs are showing up, but that is nature because this male lion has been kicked basically out of the coalition where it's on its own and it's going to struggle to survive and it probably won't survive another six or nine months. So from that perspective, from a tourism perspective, there could be an opportunity, but canned lion hunting is just the absolute worst. Now, interestingly, there's been a bit of misinformation about the different kinds of lion hunting. We mentioned canned hunting, which is the release of a lion into an area of a limited size for the purposes of being hunted. And that has always been illegal. What hasn't been illegal is captive bred lion hunting. And that's the release of a captive bred lion into an appropriately sized area for what they term a fair hunt. Now, with the adoption of the government panel regulations, both these kinds of hunting will be illegal. But what will remain legal is wild lion hunting for professional hunters. To get more of an insight on the hunting debate, we spoke to a professional hunter. My name is Stuart Dorrington. I'm a game farmer and a professional hunter. And I have been president of the Professional Hunters Association in 2005 to 2007, but have started our own association called the Custodians of Professional Hunting and Conservation. We only support regulated, permitted hunting of the sustainable and benefits wildlife. A lot of people, especially in the first world, Western urbanites, tend to think that conservation is preservation, that you just don't touch wildlife. In fact, that's not conservation at all. Conservation is the wise use of natural resources. So we must use it wisely and on a sustainable base to make sure it's there for future generations. And hunting does just that, if it's controlled. For anyone opposed to lion hunting, that last statement may seem like something a professional hunter would say to make sure his interests are protected. But according to world-renowned lion conservationist Dr. Amy Dickman, who incidentally is a vegetarian and a self-described bunny hugger, regulated professional hunting does have a role to play because it helps ease the conflict between lions and humans. The big thing that wild hunting does offer at the moment is it secures huge amounts of wild lion habitat. So more wild lion habitat at the moment is protected under trophy hunting areas than in national parks, because trophy hunting is not a major threat to lions at a range-wide scale. But land conversion and conflict with people really are. So the risk is if you take away the trophy hunting without having a better land use alternative ready that is based on wildlife, what you could do is you could actually take away what can be a minor threat to some populations and hugely increase the major threats of habitat loss, conflict and the poaching of prey because the economic incentive that comes from hunting does provide an incentive for landowners, the government or whoever to set aside that habitat for wild lions. 
The other important question in the debate is: if lion hunting is banned, what form of land use takes its place? Of course, there is the option of creating tourism-focused areas like wildlife parks, but it's not practical to convert every square kilometer of wild Africa into a tourist area. And the alternatives, things like farming, mining, land development, are definitely not good for lions. Here's Stuart Dorrington again, citing an example from Tanzania. I think there's 151 concessions outside national parks in Tanzania that were run and occupied by professional hunters, and it's far bigger than all the national parks put together. The anti-hunting lobby has been very effective in getting the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services to restrict or to put a moratorium on the importation of lions and elephant hunting trophies from Tanzania. When I took lions out of it and elephants out of it, the viability, the economic viability of managing those areas crashed. It was no longer viable. The result is a lot of them have been changed to agricultural areas now, different land uses, and those that haven't have been invaded by herders. And when they bring their cattle in, they kill the predators. It has been apocalyptic for lion populations and for wildlife in those areas. And a final word on hunting from Amy Dickman, who's seen firsthand the damage caused to lions by land use solutions that aren't well thought out. We don't want to take away a very visible and sometimes minor threat to lions and replace it with a hidden. Major threat to lions. That would be a huge disservice both to people and to wild lions. Because just as an example, the amount of lion killing that we had in our area that we were focusing on with village land was around 50 to 100 times higher than would have been permitted in a trophy hunting area. So right through this episode, you would have obviously picked up that、uh, lion conservation is faced with an absolute multitude of very, very difficult problems to overcome. But there are solutions being put into place. Yeah, and I think that what's very exciting is making more and more land available in countries in Africa for wildlife and、um, these these game parks. And if we look at Tanzania, Botswana, and Zimbabwe, contributing huge amounts of land to conservation. In some cases, other countries committing one third of their land to area for conservation. I know that here in South Africa, they're doing a lot more and getting involved with communities to buy up land and make them into parks, which is exciting. And and definitely on the Tanzanian, Botswana, and Zimbabwean side. You see the benefit because the communities are benefiting from tourism, and、um, there's just much more space for wildlife to be able to operate.、Uh, I think that's a, overall a very, very good story.、Mm. And we've spoken about the South African government's involvement in banning captive breeding of lions and, and, and phasing that industry out. But more importantly, across Africa, I think the bigger problem is that. We find a way for humans and lions to coexist peacefully because neither of us are going to go anywhere. Well, hopefully.、Yeah. But、uh, there is some work being done on that front as well、uh, by Dr. Amy Dickman. She explains what she's been doing in Kenya. I work with the Maasai, the Baraweg, and other groups around Ruaha in Tanzania, and people say they do want lions around, but obviously they don't want the costs associated with them. So we end up working with them to try to prevent lion attacks. That's the first thing that people want prevented. So how to best protect people's livestock. But then you've got to really deliver benefits that are linked to the presence of those animals. And so the work that we do around Ruaha, for instance, is developing community benefit mechanisms which are specifically tied to the presence of lions.、Uh, we do something called community camera trapping, where villagers monitor wildlife on their land. They get points for how many different species, with more points for conflict-causing species like lions, and those points are directly translated into community benefits.、Um, focused, they want it on healthcare, veterinary care. And、um, education. 
Now, it might sound like a lot of what we've spoken about is up to other people, to professionals, to people who are working in lion conservation, but there is a lot that the public can do to get involved with lion conservation. And one of the things that I came away with from producing this podcast is a very simple thing, and that is just ask the right questions, particularly when it comes to things like lion interaction. Ask yourself the right questions and also educate people that you know or friends or, as in my case, with family that came out from overseas. And there are a lot of other things that the public can do to get involved with lion conservation. There's an incredible series of books that they've brought out across the wildlife spectrum. And one of the great ones is, I must be honest, I do own one of these, Remembering Lions. It's got incredible photographs. It's a beautiful coffee table book. And it also just talks about lions and where they are. The Endangered Wildlife Trust, it's always done fantastic work. WWF, Wildlife Act. Youth for Lions. The SPCA Wildlife Unit as well, which sadly receives absolutely no money from government. So they are completely reliant on public donations. There's also the African Lion Working Group. There's Panthera. There's Pride Lion Conservation Alliance. And you can also, of course, watch the documentary Blood Lions. Those are all things that you can do to empower yourself in the fight for lions and lion conservation. There's a lot of very interesting, maybe sometimes a little bit gory, but to watch lions and how they survive in the bush and what they do, they're very strategic. You can learn so much from them. Mm. You know, I fell in love with some of these stories, uh, the Mapocha lions, one of the most famous coalitions Mm. in Africa, and how those six big males dominated a certain area in, uh, in the Kruger area. We look at the Marsh Pride, who's also become very famous out yep. of Botswana. Yep. The Scar from, from East Africa. <laughs> yeah. And, and not the Disney Scar. I was going to say, not the one from uh, yeah, the Lion no. King. But you must see how beautiful this lion is. Incredibly handsome lion. He's still alive. He's quite old now. His brother passed away last year. Mm. They have their stories and their bloodline and what they do to make sure it continues. That's incredible. I, I really don't want that to go away. Yeah. You know, if there's only humans left in the world, that will be a very, very, very <laughs> sad place. <laughs> well, that is one of the aims of this podcast. And we urge you to get involved in any way possible with the conservation of lions. We mentioned a whole bunch of ways. There are links in the show notes to some of those organizations as well. And we urge you to get involved so we can ensure that these amazing creatures are around for future generations. This has been an episode of Blind Conservation Lion Stories with me, Spike Ballantyne, and my co-host, Anthony Miedera. Our thanks to Dr. Amy Dickman, Dr. Louise Duval, Dr. Kelly Monowick, Stuart Dorrington, and Nicola Gerard. Blind Conservation is written and produced by me, Spike Ballantyne, and is a production of cliffcentral.com in South Africa. Find all the episodes of the Blind Conservation podcast series on the Cliff Central app or wherever you get your podcasts.